We're in the book of the Judges. No surprise there for you. And uh, today we begin part 15, or rather we continue uh, with part 15, starting in chapter 9, verse 22. This is the continuation of the story of Abimelech, who we learned about last week, which is very much connected to the story of Gideon. Gideon, he had the fleece, and he also had 70 sons. Abimelech was one of his sons. His name meant, anybody remember Abimelech's name? King is my dad. Yeah, yeah. My father is the king. That's his name. And as we learned last week, uh, his Mother is Canaanite. She's from Shechem. And this is both a problem and, uh, and a move that Abimelech will use to propel him to kingship. He comes up with a plan, and the plan is, if I can recruit the people on my mom's side of the family, the people of Shechem, if they can convince the aristocracy of Shechem to support me, then I can become king. And he makes his argument on one or two reasons. One, wouldn't it be better to have one guy rule over you than 70? And second, wouldn't it be better to have a relative rule over you than a stranger? The aristocracy goes along with it. They fund Abimelech. He uses the money to hire some men to kill his brothers. Except one, Jotham, his youngest brother, as we learned last week. And before Jotham flees the region, he gives a speech. Jotham's fable, top of Mount Gerizim, And he gives his speech addressed to the people of Shechem. And he tells this fable in which the trees go out to find themselves a king. And they approach the olive tree and will you be king? Will you reign over us? The olive tree says, no, no, I'm too busy. Uh, i got too much going on. I'm serving. I'm helping. Uh, I'm doing a lot of good things. I can't be king. And then he approaches the, the fig tree and the grapevine and they say the same thing. No, thank you. We're too busy serving and helping others. And then, of course, they approach the thorn bush that is the bramble who is very much representing Abimelech, the thorn bush, which has absolutely nothing to contribute, gladly accepts the position. And then Jotham concludes his fable and he reminds the people of what Gideon, his father, has done for them. And he says, how is it that you've repaid Gideon, my father? Like, how is it that you've repaid them? Now, if everything's on the up and up, you've got nothing to worry about. But he reminds them of how Gideon saved them from the Midianites. And in asking them, really, in bringing this up, it raises that question. Like, how how are you you repaying my family? Of course, last week I brought up the fact that when you think of the the parallel, right, how Gideon has saved them, how are they repaying Gideon's family? Well, they fund the guy to kill all of Gideon's sons in the same way. Like, as Gideon has saved them, Christ has saved us. And how do we repay Christ? And of course, we can't repay Christ for what he's done for us in living the life we could not live and dying the death we should have died and paying the price we could not afford to pay. But it begs the same question of, we have a responsibility to live in obedience to him. Like, they have a responsibility to do good to Gideon's family. Of course, they haven't. They haven't done good. And Jotham says, listen, if, if everything you've done is on the up and up, you've got nothing to worry about. However, if you haven't been faithful, well, then we've got a problem. And he brings up verse 20 of chapter 9. He says, but if not, right? 
If you have, drop the ball. Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. Let the people of Shechem, let Abimelech, let them just beat each other up. Devour one another. And so he flees and it's been three years now. There's a three-year gap between chapter 921 and chapter 922. And Abimelech, verse 22, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. He ruled over Israel three years. The narrator refuses to dignify him with the title of king, simply saying that he ruled. And the scope of his authority goes beyond Shechem, to Israel as a whole. But as we've seen elsewhere in the book, Israel does not necessarily mean the entire nation, but may be restricted to a local geographical area, which very well may be the case here. So three years since Jotham's given his speech, since Abimelech has stolen the crown, and then verse 23, and God sent an evil spirit, more on that at the end of the sermon, between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam, Jeroboam, that's another name for Gideon, it means let Baal contend for Baal, going back to chapter 6, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him, on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told to Abimelech. The honeymoon is over for the people of Shechem and Abimelech. Now, now they are butting heads. Now things are not going well at all. And there's a new sheriff in town for the people of Shechem. And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and they reviled Abimelech. They had a huge party and they talked trash about Abimelech, their king. And Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam? He's not one of us. He's not a true Shechemite. And is not Zebul his officer? So here's what I propose. Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Why should we serve Abimelech? Would that this people were under my hand, right? Things would be going so much better if I was the shot caller. Then I would remove Abimelech. That's exactly what I would do. I'd take him out. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army, Abimelech, and come out. So, this guy, Gail, appears out of nowhere, kind of as the champion of this rebel rebel faction that has now appeared. And he seems to be a native 
and true Shechemite, claiming descent from Hamor, the founder of the city. He may have been one of the lords, part of the aristocracy of Shechem. It's entirely possible. And it's possible as well that when Abimelech's relatives lobbied the Shechemite aristocracy three years earlier, that perhaps Gael and his family did not go along. They refused to support Abimelech's purge, and they were forced to flee in exile, and possibly he's been waiting up until this time to return. And he returns, and he's well received. And he takes advantage of the poor popular opinion that the people of Shechem have of Abimelech. And they have a massive party, and he's asking these rhetorical questions, trying to rekindle the Shechemite ethnic pride to challenge them to recognize just how absolutely absurd their servitude is to Abimelech. How ridiculous it was for them to cower to this outsider. Give him a shot at power. After all, he's a true Shechemite. So this all happens at a party. Abimelech apparently is out of town when this goes down. But his commander, his governor, whoever he's left in charge that was already referenced, he hears about it. Word gets back to Abimelech. Verse 30. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. They are talking trash about you. Now therefore go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. Gives them a plan. We're not going to wait. We're not going to have a conversation. Abimelech, my suggestion is, surprise them, kill them. Seems drastic, but... That's exactly what Abimelech does. He takes his commander's advice in verse 34. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gael the son of Ebed went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. Zebul said, Nah, I don't think so. You, you, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Short time later, verse 37, Gael spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now? You who said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. And Gael went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived in Aromah. Zebul drove out Gael and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. Everything works perfectly, flawlessly for Abimelech. Thanks to his commander, his man in the city, Zebul. They see Abimelech's forces approaching. And Gael 
He says, Zebul, look. Now, obviously, he was talking trash about Zebul, but at this point, he doesn't know what's going on. This could be just a foreign nation coming to approach. And so he goes to the Bimelech's man, the guy in charge of the city. Look, 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 look at that. Ah, no, it's nothing. Just the shadows. Buys him time. Delay, delay. And then when he finally realizes, no, those aren't shadows. Those are men coming down. It's too late. And Zebul's like, where's your big mouth now? I heard you run your mouth last night. So what are you going to go do now? All you have left to do is go out and fight him. And by that time, it's too late. It's too late for him to be prepared enough to have any type of chance against Abimelech. So this guy and the rebel faction is put to flight. But the story doesn't end there. Apparently, the very next day, the people, the townspeople, they think they can just go about their normal day. It's going to be business as usual. They'll go out, they'll work the fields, they'll resume their lives. And Abimelech says, yeah, no, it's not going to be business as usual. Not, not for what went down, not for that high treason. And whether these people were a part of that conversation the night before, we don't know, but Abimelech doesn't care. He says, kill them all. Verse 42, On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance at the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. So evidently, the battle the day before, there's still pockets of resistance throughout the city that they're dealing with. So he fought against, verse 45, he fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he raised the city, right? He torched it and sowed it with salt. Uh, no second chances for Abimelech. He doesn't give second chances. Verse 46, Now when all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, this probably is the Shechemite aristocracy, they entered the stronghold, the fortress, the house of Elberith. And Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. So Abimelech's probably having to go different pocket by pocket throughout the city. This is real urban warfare, dealing, finding, hunting everyone who's there. And so that first battle against Gale, that was only the first, really the, the first page, the first chapter. And so he's going pocket by pocket throughout the city, and the last pocket, they're in the, the top geographical area on top of the Acropolis in their mountain fortress. Verse 48, And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. Goes out, cuts down some brush, says, Kramer, Noah, Eb, do the same thing I did. Follow me up. And they go up to the top where the tower is. Verse 49. So every one of the people cut his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold at the top of the city geographically. And they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. This guy. Take no prisoners, Abimelech. Maybe that could be his nickname. Slaughtering all the Shechemites. 
Verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes. This would have been a nearby city. And encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city. And all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it. And shut themselves in and they went up to the roof of the tower. I'm thinking at this point, don't do that. Like Abimelech's really good. (laughs) I'm reading verse 51. I'm like, this is a terrible plan. Like Abimelech, we've seen this happen already. He's just going to torch the place down. Verse 52, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. She dropped a giant rock. And then he called quickly to the young man of his armor bearer and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they pretty much just all gave up and went home. And everyone departed to his home. Thus, verse 56, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerobel, that is, Gideon. told you guys, small group last week, it was going to get real bloody. And it has. And so we see here at the end of the story, we see Abimelech's reign of terror come to an end. Jotham's curse is fulfilled. The people of Shechem who supported him, dead. Abimelech, dead. What's the point? There's an Abimelech in every single generation we live in, guys. And sooner or later, every rebellion against God comes to ruin. I think that's the point. Abimelech's in charge. Abimelech's killing people. Abimelech's reign continues for three years. Why? God permits it to continue for three years. That's it. But Abimelech's not the true king. God is the true king. That's the point of the story. But what is perhaps most interesting is the role that God played in this story. I don't know if you guys saw it. Yes, Jotham's curse is going to come to fruition. Chapter 9, verse 20 But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. That happens. How does it happen? God. God does. God aligns things that they devour one another. But we'll go back to verse 23. Because verse 23 is a very peculiar verse. And it's peculiar... Because we know God has a role in this story. He's the one that brings about the things that Jotham has pronounced in chapter 9, verse 20. He brings it about. But it raises the question, how does he bring it about that they are going to war against one another? And that's how he's going to do it. He's going to send an evil spirit. Now, if you've never read this verse or you've seen it for the very first time, it may seem strange to you or very peculiar. You're like, If you didn't know any better, you'd probably be like, You'd probably be like this meme I saw 
the other day. I love it. It's such a good meme. I guess it's from a movie with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And he's, he's I guess he's, he's driving in the car, and he, he says a verse, right? And the girl in the backseat, what's the name of the movie? No? No one knows? Oh, you guys can tell me later. But he, he says a verse, and the girl in the backseat, she's like, uh, I disagree with your interpretation. And then he leans over and he says, that wasn't my interpretation. I was just reading the verse. So if you probably didn't know any better, right? Maybe you, you, if you heard someone say, yeah, remember that time where God sent evil spirit? You'd probably be like, oh, I disagree with that interpretation. And of course I would respond, well, that's not interpretation. I just read the verse, right? But we, we, so when we see verses like this, sometimes we, we really struggle with them. Um, part of the reason is because a lot of these verses never get talked about. John Piper wrote a book all about verses like these called spectacular sins and their global purpose in the glory of Christ. And it's a great book because all the verses are verses like these. And I love it. I love verses that you're like, whoa, I've never heard those verses before. And and I grew up in church my entire life, never heard verses like these. That's the great thing about expository preaching. Essentially, you'll come and you'll come to a verse like this that says God sent an evil spirit. But I think part of the reason we're resistant or we're like, well, I don't know about that is because God's not evil. And to that, I would totally agree. And so we'd say, God's sending an evil spirit. Well, that might taint his reputation. And I don't want to taint God's reputation. So let me see how I can change this. So we'd say, well, God didn't send it. God just allowed it, right? And I hear people use that type of terminology all the time because that somehow it, it lessens, I guess, God's reputation or it kind of takes him off the hook so that no one might think anything poorly about who our God is. But even that, we have to restructure the sentence. God sent an evil spirit. He brought about this, and this is how we did it. Everything between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. You're like, that's... That's hard. That's, that's a hard thing. So how do I understand this? I think there's two key components in understanding hard verses like this. And the first is from Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. Good things, all things. Bad things, all things. All things were created through him, and all things were created for him. As Piper would say in commenting on this verse, to say it another way, everything that exists in the universe, and this would include evil, is ordained by an infinitely holy and all-wise God to make the glory of Christ shine more brightly. And I'll say it again. If you're writing this, taking notes, you want to write this down. So when we understand this, Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created through him and for him. Piper would have his little footnote, paraphrasing. In other words, everything that exists, including evil, is ordained by an infinitely holy and all-wise God to make the glory of Christ shine more brightly. Everything in the universe is ordained by God. Because that's really what Colossians 1.16 says, right? All things were created through Him and for Him. All things. All things means all things. 
You say everything in the universe is ordained by God, both good and evil? Kind of seems that way. But it raises the question, then, what do you mean by the word ordained? You say everything in the universe is ordained, good and evil alike, to ultimately glorify Jesus Christ. What do you mean by ordained? And I suppose it's important that we explain what ordained means. See, when I, when I say ordained, I'm taking a page of Piper's book, I mean that God either causes something directly or he permits it for his wise purposes. So we have the umbrella, and the umbrella represents all things that are ordained, right? All things. That's ordained. And underneath the umbrella, God causes things directly, or God permits, or the word I think people love to say, allows. Same thing. So he either causes things directly, what does that mean? He ordained it. Or he permits it to take place for his wife's purpose. What does that mean? It means he ordained it. It means he ordained it. But when we understand this, when we look at verse like 23, where God sends the evil spirit, we would say, well, God didn't send it. God just permitted it because we're so concerned with God's reputation lest he have some type of negative association with evil itself. And so we say, oh, he just permits it as if to whitewash the pages of Scripture. But understand this, that even when God permits something, it is a kind of indirect causing because, one, God knows all the factors involved. Two, he knows what the effects will be. And three, he could have prevented it. So yes, everything, according to Colossians 1.16, is ordained by God. Good and evil, it's ordained by Him. He either causes things directly, that's ordained, or He permits it, allows it. But even when He permits it, He has, in some sense, caused it. As we said, because He knows all the factors involved, He knows what the effects will be, and oh, by the way, He could have prevented it in the first place. And he does these things ultimately to glorify his son. All things were created through him and all things were created for him. Or another way to look at it and understand this would be as Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. It's not a false thing to tell someone God has a purpose for your life. Not a false thing. Why? The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Even the wicked were made for a purpose. Even the wicked were made for the day of trouble. Man, I don't know about that. I don't like Proverbs 16.4, would say a young Joe Dacreon. God made the wicked for the day of trouble? That's what it says. That's what it says. And there's a mystery here, right? Because you read this and you would say, if that's the case, how does he hold us accountable and responsible? If that's the case, how does he still stay sinless, right? And so we'd say, if that's true, or as the text says today, he sins this evil spirit, how does he still remain sinless? If he's made the wicked for the day of trouble, how does he still hold them re responsible and accountable? You'd say, well, he can't. Therefore, that verse can't mean what it's saying. But you see what I just did there? 
I inserted my own assumption. And that's the danger. See, see, the danger that we run into is when we come across really hard verses like these that we can't explain, instead of humbling ourselves under the authority of Scripture, which I think that's the second key to understanding this, we bring to the Bible assumptions that we have that aren't actually taught in the Bible, and that's how we nullify God's Word. That's how we take this book and put it through the shredder, the shredder, the blender, whatever. We say, God is sinless, and God holds man responsible. I know those things are true. Therefore, when I read a verse like this, it seems to negate at least the responsibility part of man, since he's made the wicked for the day of trouble, so I don't know how he can hold them responsible anymore. So therefore, there's a problem, right? Because of the assumption I've made. And we say, there's either a problem with my assumption, or there's a problem with the Bible verse. There's a problem with the Bible verse. And that's what we say when we come across hard verses. That's the risk. And that's the danger. When you come to the Bible with assumptions that are not taught in the Bible, you run the risk of nullifying the Bible. Does God hold man responsible for his actions? Yep. Is God totally sinless? Yes. Then how can that be? I don't know. It's okay to say that. It's okay to say, I I don't know how God is totally sinless and God holds man totally responsible for his actions. I don't know how those fit together. But you know what? The Bible says it. And so rather than saying there's something wrong with the Bible verse, I'm going to go on a limb and say maybe the problem is with my understanding. See, humility is one of the ways that we deal with hard verses like chapter 9, verse 23, that says God sent an evil spirit out. Because we say, no, God, I don't think God would do that, right? He might allow it. So we say, well, you got to look at the whole context, right? Well, that's why we go verse by verse and we've read all of chapter 9. Or you say, well, you got to look at the original language, right? What do you think our English Bibles are based off of? Right? Well, I disagree with that interpretation. That was an interpretation. We just read the verse. Those are all common, like, objections that I hear people say that I used to say when I came across a, a verse in the Bible that was just hard and that contradicted an assumption that I had. I thought, the problem is with the verse, not with my assumption. My assumption's right and true. And instead of humbly placing myself underneath the authority of the text, I said, nope, can't be. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine. We were reading Romans chapter 9, The Great Tiger. Hard passage, right? Um, She said, well, I disagree with the interpretation. I said, well, I didn't interpret anything. We've just been reading it. That's a good point, she said. And so then she said, well, you know what? After thinking about it a few days, I think Paul was just taking those verses out of context and he misinterpreted them. See, humility is the key. Humility is the key to how we handle hard verses that go against an assumption that we had. Oh, be careful that you don't bring your assumptions and insert them into the text. Because then you just might as well put this in the blender. Yeah, that's what she said. I think Paul is taking these verses out of context. He's misinterpreting them. 
That's, that's literally how far she got off the reservation. That's a dangerous place to be because at that point, then you can say, LGBTQIA issues? So whatever you want, right? I'm just going to fold the Bible and make the verses say whatever I want it to say anytime. I'll agree with the verses that I like and the verses that I don't like. Well, I'll just say that they're actually saying something else because they don't fit in my assumption. See, we do that. It's not just the progressive, liberal, LGBTQIA Christians. We do that too. Instead of humbly putting ourselves underneath the authority of Scripture and saying, God, this is boggling my mind. I don't fully understand this. But Lord, protect me from pride and arrogance and help me, God, to work through this. We say, nah, no thanks. Not going there. Not going there at all. Well, the Bible does go there. Oh, all things were made through Christ and for Christ. And all things includes, oh, by the way, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. It's all things. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And oh, by the way, those same thrones, dominion, rulers, and authorities were defeated by Christ at the cross. In other words, they were made for the day of trouble. As Proverbs 16.4 states, that God knew what they would become when he created them. He knew what the 9-11 hijackers would become when he created them. And he folded their evil into his plan of redemption that we're going to celebrate in another week of what culminated on Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus defeated these thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. And his power was on display, and his justice was on display, and his wrath was on display, and his love was on display. So yeah, everything in the universe is ordained by God. As Colossians 1.16 states, all things, is that limited to just good things? No, all things means all things. There's an Abimelech in every age. And sooner or later, every rebellion against the true king comes to ruin. This is really, 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 really good news. Some of you are sitting here, maybe, and your mind is a little boggled. Um, I get that. I've been there. But once you get past this, this is the best news ever. No, there's evil Abimelechs in every single age. And the good news is that your God is so much bigger than you may have even realized half an hour ago. So much bigger. Evil Abimelech, evil happening in our world today, seemingly going unchecked. Who's going to stop the evil men like Abimelech today? God will. Just as he has done throughout every single age. He'll stop them. In fact, the only reason Abimelech's having success right now is because God has, in some sense, ordained Abimelech to have success. And God will fold his evil plans into God's ultimate plan of redemption. It's nothing new. You've heard verses like this before. You go back to Genesis chapter 50, Joseph's brothers. And he tells them, you meant 
What you meant for evil against me, God meant for good. Was it God's plan that Joseph be sold into slavery and betrayed by his brothers? Absolutely it was, according to Joseph. I don't know unless he's taken that out of context. That's what Joseph says, right? Listen, it was God's plan, brothers, that this all happened to me. All these terrible things. That's what Joseph says. Christians don't talk that way. All these terrible things are happening to me. They would never say that. But for many Christians, our view of God is too small. We have just such a puny little God. He only handles all the good stuff. Bad stuff? Nope, he never gets involved with that. He always takes the day off when it comes to bad stuff. Joseph doesn't say that. Joseph says, listen, it was God's plan, right, for this all to happen to me. It was really hard. It was really tough. It was really difficult. But it was God's plan. And oh, by the way, I know you thought it was your plan the whole time. And yeah, you meant evil. God meant it for good. Like the same plan, right? The same plan, but two designs. Two designs in the same plan. One for evil. That's the plan. He goes to Egypt. Evil. Other. Good. The salvation of his people and the glory of God. So, yeah, God sent an evil spirit to bring about the curse that Jotham put on these people. And that's good news, folks. That's good news that Abimelech is not just running around unchecked, unstopped. God's going to stop him on God's time. Sooner or later, every rebellion comes to ruin. Why? It serves to glory God. It serves to make much of God. So that when Abimelech is stopped and his reign of power comes to an end, we praise God and we rejoice. Even the wicked were made for the day of trouble. Yeah, I'm thankful for a God like this. I'm thankful for a God who is very much invested in human affairs. I think much of the time I would think of God in such a way that he'd say, all right, well, I'm not going to get involved, right? I'm not going to encroach upon, like, your will. I'm not going to involve myself. Good luck, guys. It's oftentimes how we think. You know, it's never how we pray, though. <laughs> Even some of you who are really struggling with what I'm saying right now, that's not how you pray. You're like, God, get involved. God, do whatever you can do. Well, hold on. That totally goes against... Maybe some of your theology. That's how we pray. We pray as if God is totally sovereign, totally in control of all things. Unfortunately, I'm not sure how much we always believe it. No, uh, he's involved, and every rebellion against the king, the true king, eventually, sooner or later, comes to an end. Abimelech comes to an end. Oh, my prayer is today, guys, that we would have a bigger view of God, that we would have a smaller view of ourselves and understand that God does this in case there's any confusion when I say that he ordains all things, good and bad, according to Colossians 1.16. He does it without sinning. He doesn't sin. He does it while still holding man responsible. Abimelech will be held responsible and accountable. How does that work? And that's a mystery. I don't, I don't fully understand it. The Bible doesn't fully explain it, right? But I'm like, okay, I see Colossians 1.16. I see these verses. 
So God, I don't understand it. And that's why I said, I think in understanding these, humility is the key. Can you humble yourselves underneath the authority of God's word? Can you? Or like my friend who just, just couldn't, she said, well, I think Paul's just taking those verses out of context. You want to pick up the pen and, and, and write an inspired book of the Bible? Okay, good luck with that. That's the height of arrogance. And so that's my prayer for us today. I'm not saying these are easy verses. I'm not saying I, I can fully explain how God is totally sinless, totally sovereign, and holds man accountable and responsible. I can't explain that, but the Bible says it, so I believe it. And I want you to believe it too. Because one word from this sermon is hope. When Abimelech's running around slaughtering people in the streets, when planes are crashing into buildings, when kids are dying because they don't have food in third world countries, you need hope. They need hope. And you need a God who can come through and deliver. A God who really is as big as as his word says he is. So as the team comes, I want to pray today. So Lord, these are hard things. These are big things. These are heavy things. And we need understanding. I know there's at least one person right here, in here right now, maybe more. We need understanding. And we need humility. God, it's, it's encouraging and yet mind-boggling to know how big you are, but it's still, oh, Lord, it's mind-boggling. And Lord, I don't even fully understand, but I pray, Lord, for a spirit of humility for those of us today that we would trust you that we would trust you, Jesus. Just as we, tr- I want us to trust you that you saved us on the cross for our sins. I pray that we would trust what your word says, even when we come across verses that I don't know if we fully grasp. And I pray that we would live in hope and confidence because that's really what the story is about. It's, there's hope and there's confidence. Jotham's prophetic word comes about. How? You. Abimelech's reign of terror ends. How? You? And in 2019, we need some hope and confidence. We need a bigger view of our God. Oh, that that might encourage our hearts today. Amen.